Simple Beep, episode 49, Town Hall. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And welcome to our town hall debate. No, not that. <laughs> no. Absolutely not that. <laughs> we are recording this podcast, if you're listening sometime in the far future, if there is a far future, uh, right before the uh, 2016 election here in the U.S. So uh, it's a nice little pun for town hall, but that's actually not the reason that we chose the topic for right now. There's other better reasons for why we're talking about Apple's town hall event space in this episode. But before we get into that, of course, we have some follow-up. And uh, in in what seems to be a recurring pattern for our show, follow-up can go further and further into the past. Um, most, most podcasts usually limit their follow-up to the previous week, maybe two weeks. Uh, we have follow-up from episode one. Yep, that's correct. There are new MacBook Pros out as we record this. I actually bought one. You're recording on it right now. I'm recording aren't you? on it right now. I, I, I'm in the age of Retina, finally, Retina on the desktop or laptop. Uh, it's new MacBook Pros. Uh, some are more pro than others, but all of the new MacBook Pros uh, introduced in late 2016 have no startup chime. And our first episode of this podcast was all about the the evolution of the Mac startup chime. Uh, so we just wanted to follow up that if if we ever did go back and, and add something to it, uh, there'd be a sad, perhaps final chapter where there's just a silent chime. But that's only by default. Right. So this this caused some great hand-wringing on, on the internet um, and, and several tweets to us going, oh my gosh, you guys talked about this in your first episode. Now it's gone forever. Not gone forever yet. So... The deal with these new MacBooks is that MacBook Pros is that uh, they charge a little bit differently. They have a little bit different sleep wake on and off behavior. Um, I guess it was with the MacBook, the one port MacBook, super thin 12 inch MacBook, introduced the little on screen charging indicator like on iPads. So it was getting to be more like iPad like power management. And that's how these new MacBook Pros are. If you open them up, if you open it up and it's off, it turns on. And so I guess maybe that's people have cited that as a potential reason that it doesn't chime when you just open it up, because that could be, I don't know, alarming. <laughs> um, and then people realize, so the way that this story first broke is that someone, someone very astute looking through the uh, help documentation on the Apple support site found the page that describes how you reset your NVRAM, uh, which you know, used to be known as the PRAM, where these very low-level system settings are stored. And it said, in the classic Mac, well, in, up until this Mac that was just released, what you do is you hold Command-Option-PR at startup, and you wait until your Mac chimes twice, at least. And that indicates that the PRAM or NVRAM has been reset. And the new instruction is wait 20 seconds, and then you'll know that it's been done because there are no chimes going on. And so it's the question of, well, this, is this just for PRAM resets? Is this in general? We figured out that it was the default in general, and everyone said, okay, RIP startup chime. Never again will we hear our lovely F major chord. And then, uh, ironically, there's a way to turn it back on. And guess what? It's with our friend, the NVRAM. <laughs> um, so 
Also, if you remember, if you listened to episode one of the show, there were there have always been some haters of the startup chime. People who, for whatever reason, don't want their machines to chime whenever they turn them on. You know, I don't know, maybe it's a machine in a library or something. Who knows? You know, you, you don't want to disturb people. And people say, I hate that it chimes every time that I have to install a startup or a software update or something. And it restarts and it goes, boom. Uh, how do I turn it off? Well, there was a way to do that by uh, executing a terminal command that sets a particular variable in the NVRAM. And that was to actually turn it off. The setting was system audio volume, and you would set it to, um, you basically set it to off. Um, and the way that you do this now to get the startup chime back is another NVRAM command. So sudo NVRAM, and then the variable now is boot audio equals percent %01. And that will set it to the setting of one, which means on, which means, yes, please make a, a happy sounding chime whenever you start up even your newest Mac. For what it's worth, I have not invoked this command yet, uh, just because I'm usually not really turning machines off. Right. And we had even mentioned that on, on episode one as well, that it's like, well, you know, maybe the startup chime is on the way out because people just don't have a compelling reason to restart that much. Yeah. Okay, so that that clears out two-year-old follow-up. <laughs> um, more recent follow-up from episode 47, which is actually our most recent sort of regular format episode. We had the draft and the interviews from release notes in the meantime. Uh, but our last regular episode was about Avera, and we had guest on Scarlet Swordfish, and he sent in this follow-up to us that I guess he and some of the other Avera community members have been uh, in continued contact uh, with Yuri Munki, who's the original developer of Avera. And he has gone ahead and released the original source code to Avera, and it's now available on GitHub. Um, he's got a nice little sort of open letter in the readme there on GitHub that explains a little bit of what the development process was like, what the tools are that he used. And he says that it's, it's sounds like it's kind of very uh, stock C++ and that except for handling uh, classic macOS resource forks, that a lot of this really could be just taken and ported to a more modern system. So it'll be interesting to see what people do with that. For someone like me who <laughs> knows absolutely no C++, it's just a curiosity, but it's it's cool that that little uh, bit of community engagement kept going, and now this is available and preserved, and people can do with it what they will. I'm very interested to see if it is uh, recompiled in some way for modern platforms because uh, one of our biggest resources for preparing these podcast episodes is the Internet Archive. And I think it was them or someone related to them recently that started the discussion of like, how are we going to preserve software uh, if if the hardware on which it can run, you know, falls out of repair, like it literally can't boot because some of the parts are dead and no one makes replacements anymore um, so things like this, where the source is made available for old software in a way that might be able to be recompiled on modern platforms is uh, is just very exciting for us here on the show, because it's, it, it'll help us <laughs> do more <laughs> digging uh, back into the, the days of the classic Mac, uh, potentially in the future. Oh, yeah. And this wasn't in our outline for the show for follow up. 
but there was interesting news from the Internet Archive within the past couple weeks, which is that they now have a beta feature that does like a very high-level keyword search. It's obviously not yet like Google for the past Internet. You can't like actually do keyword search within pages, but they have uh, extracted sort of basic keywords at a domain-by-domain level. And you can narrow down sites by by keyword and then go and dig into the actual archives for them. And I know that that's going to be hugely useful for us and for anyone who's interested in this kind of history and research, because it used to be that you had to have the exact website, like the exact URL to get to a page in the Internet Archive. And while you could usually get just like the the root level domain name and go from there, you know, just apple.com and then try to navigate to a particular subpage at a particular time, that works if you know the the domain name. And, you know, if it's apple.com, of course, you do know the domain name. But for many sites, it's like I don't actually know even what the domain name was, you know, like, okay, like something like Ram Doubler. You know, maybe you can type that in as a keyword now and get to the site, but if you didn't know that it was connectix.com, like you were just kind of sunk before. And I know that I actually researched some things where like we would find a product and we wanted more information about it and we would get the company name. I would just start typing permutations of the company name dot com, dot net, dot like everything into Internet Archive, just hoping that you would hit upon something because there was no other way of confirming it. So this is going to be really cool, really useful. Definitely. All right, I think that covers all of our follow-up. <laughs> so yeah, let's get into our topic for today, which is Apple's Town Hall event space. And we chose this topic for a couple of reasons. And the first one is that there was an event there just recently, and it wound up being, we think, this time for real, the last event there. Uh, so it's been in the news, and and people have actually seen the inside of it very recently, if you were following those MacBook Pro announcements that happened last week as we record this. And also another event that is kind of tied in is since our last regular episode, there's been a lot of good stuff doing recaps on the iPod because we recently passed the 15th anniversary of the iPod announcement, which actually also happened in Apple's town hall. So now let's get into what and where this space is and what kind of purposes it's served over the past 15 plus years. Yeah. One of the reasons we're pretty sure that we've seen the last event in Town Hall is because Town Hall is an event space on Apple's campus and Apple is very near completion of the construction of their new gigantic Apple Campus 2. Which is then going to blast off and go into orbit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh so let's talk a little bit about Apple's current campus, uh, affectionately known as Infinite Loop, the circular road on which the, the main six buildings are located. Town Hall is in Building 4 on Infinite Loop, which is shared with Cafe Max, the company cafeteria. Uh, Apple Campus 1, which uh, most people probably think of just the six buildings around Infinite Loop, which, you know, like one Infinite Loop is the company's corporate mailing address and has the 
headquarters retail store. Yeah, I only ever thought of one infinite loop because I thought that, you know, it, it's the best pun, right? I mean, infinite loop is a computer science joke because you can set up an infinite loop in, in a program, but one infinite loop is an even better, you know, like it, it rolls off the tongue. It's an entire phrase by itself. Two infinite loop is an address. One infinite loop is a pun. <laughs> yeah. So there are the six main buildings around infinite loop, but Apple you know, as a sprawling and growing company has many other buildings that kind of tie into this original campus in Cupertino. The main six building campus at Infinite Loop uh, began to go under construction in 1992 and was completed one year later in 1993. And from then until 1997, basically when Steve Jobs returned to Apple, all the activities that were held uh, at the the six main buildings at Infinite Loop were exclusively R&D. And so the buildings were referred to as R&D, one through six. And when Steve came back, he also brought in other corporate activities, not just R&D. You might have sales, you might have marketing. And then, of course, an event space to uh, demo new products, talk to members of the press or maybe uh, resale partners. And so these buildings are referred to, as we've been saying for the last couple of minutes, Infinite Loop or IL one through six. And again, the town hall event space and presentation area is in IL4. Yeah. And if you look at, there there are various images of the entrance to this building and to town hall. And as we know, with various Apple events, there will be a theme for the event, a visual theme for the event that's usually revealed on the invitation. And then that carries through the entire setup and presentation. And so there's a space above the entryway to for infinite loop that they can hang a banner and that will, if there's an event in town hall that's for the press, then there will be that thematic banner. It has a place on the outside of the building as, as people go in. And one thing that was interesting, I mean, people have been talking about uh, town hall and infinite loop and going to the original Apple campus for these events on other podcasts I've been listening to recently. And I think, uh, yeah, just today I was listening to the most recent upgrade with Jason Snell, and he was actually at the event that we're sure we think (laughs) this time is the last one at Town Hall. I was talking about the process of actually getting into the space, which I thought was interesting, a little bit more detail than we usually hear about the way that you attend an Apple event. And because it's on campus, you know, you're bringing in hundreds of members of the press, outside people who are guests on Apple's corporate campus. And you don't just want, you know, like they're not free to wander the premises. <laughs> like lots of secret stuff is going on there. Um, and he said that one, one thing that I didn't realize is I realized that all these buildings were set around Infinite Loop as the campus, but I kind of imagined like a college campus instead of like a corporate campus, like like a quad in the middle or something, and you just kind of walk between the buildings. But apparently the way that it worked for these events at Town Hall is that you actually entered through one Infinite Loop, the main entrance, got your credentials, kind of went out the back and into the courtyard, and then into four Infinite Loop once you were already sort of on-site and credentialed. So it's it in that respect, it's a very private space. Like, because even though the Apple campus is kind of shockingly public, like there's no like there's no gate at the front. You don't have to like check in just to drive up to one infinite loop. 
uh, because they have the public store there and other things. But it's interesting that this isn't a particularly private, kind of secluded space. I mean, this is going to be really nerdy, but I remember when I was studying in undergrad, I majored in classics. And uh, when I was in Italy, we were touring like houses in Pompeii and the ruins of these houses. And the whole theory was like that the number of doors that you had to go through to get to a particular space was like the more private space. So like people would meet, uh, people would hold like meetings in their homes in the front rooms, but like all the private rooms were at the back. So I thought it was interesting that like you have to kind of go, even for these more public events on Apple's campus, like you have to kind of go all the way into their house as it were, as it were to get to town hall, which is a space where then they would hold these briefings. You mentioned uh, hundreds of reporters. The reported capacity for town hall is somewhere around 300, but the new auditorium at the new Apple campus will A, be underground <laughs> and B, be more than three times that size, uh, aiming for around a, a thousand capacity. Yeah. And maybe th- this is the point to talk about the just the what the internal space of town hall looks like. And there are many, many good pictures of it. You know, Google image search for for Apple Town Hall and and you'll find them. Uh but we'll we'll put a couple in the show notes as well. And to me, I <laughs> tell me if this sounds right to you Brian. Town Hall looks like a nice but not super nice co- medium-sized college lecture hall. Yes, I 100% agree with that. <laughs> like I don't think that the seats have little like arm desks that flip out, but they could. <laughs> Because it's got, you know, it's got about 300 seats. There are these wood flip-down seats, small auditorium, two aisles down the sides, uh, basically just one big screen at the front. I mean, I think, like I said, you know, sort of like a college lecture hall. I think I've given talks on screens as big as the one, you know, projecting slides on as big as the one that they have there in town hall. And then kind of like two doors that go to backstage on, on either side of that. So, you know, 300 sounds like a lot of people, but for a company the size of Apple, even a company the size of a rebuilding Apple shortly after Steve Jobs returned, this was a, this was a pretty small space. And uh, one more reference to the seats, since we've talked a little bit about them, the latest episode of John Gruber's The Talk Show with John Moltz has a fun little digression about the seats. Apparently, they are not that comfortable. <laughs> no, and they were also having fun because uh, the World Series just round up, um, much to our chagrin, both being from Cleveland. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but they were talking about it like, um, you know, there have been these famous closings of uh, baseball stadiums or football stadiums where then like the fans will like rip out the seats and take them home as souvenirs after the last game because they don't need them anymore. <laughs> and they were like they were joking about whether they could like rip out a, a uncomfortable town hall chair and take it home as a souvenir. Well, yes, that is that is town hall. That is the context of town hall, the space on Apple's current corporate campus. So now let's get into what Town Hall was used for. We've already mentioned that it's for these press briefings. At least that's what we, those, those are the more public uses of Town Hall. Obviously, it was a good, small, you know, medium-sized event space on campus. And as far as I understand, it was certainly used for many internal meetings as well. Um, and probably also for rehearsal for 
events that happened there and events that happened in other spaces because it has this you know, lecture hall kind of format. But Apple settled into a pattern of when they used Town Hall. And it was kind of a, a seasonal space is how it turned out. We put, um, as, as we were prepping for the show, we, we put together a list of all of the events and we're not going to ex- exhaustively cover every event that happened there. There are a couple of um, good articles that we'll link to from back in what March when uh, when we thought that that was the you know final curtain call for Town Hall. People went through many of these events in order, um, and we'll, we'll link to that. But just going down the list, looking at the dates that we have here and the months that the events happened in. I'm just gonna run down here. May, February, August, March, October, March, April, October, October, September, October, March. You notice the pattern. It's all spring and fall dates. And this happened, I think, just organically because of the type of release calendar and announcement calendar that Apple was on when they started using this space in any kind of public-facing way or inviting the press in. So Apple's calendar for giving keynote speeches was largely centered around two events, Macworld in the very beginning of the year, the winter event, and WWDC in the early summer, summer event. And everything else didn't necessarily have a space, or if they wanted to organize it and invite members of the press, they would have to go some, you know, go into the city, go into San Francisco, rent an event space at Moscone or something like that for just a couple of hours as opposed to a week-long developer conference or a three- or four-day-long Macworld where they were a headline keynote speech. So Town Hall was this auxiliary space, and so to that end, you would think that it was used pretty much just for auxiliary events. And the first event there, I think, kind of falls into that category. Yeah, about as far back as we can find, the first event is May 1st, 2001, and it's to introduce and talk about the second major revision of the iBook, which was when they moved away from the colorful clamshells into the white, uh, pretty straightforward hinged dual USB iBook with a G3 still. And so that's basically what it is. There's some talk about the consumer space and how the iBook is really redefining it. There's some talk about wireless networking because the iBook also introduced that. There's a fun comparison between this new iBook, which by today's standards is gigantic, but for back then it was pretty sleek and slim. Steve Jobs gets a little crack in at Dell. Uh, as he says, Michael Dell said some disparaging things about us lately. I think this is, you know, in, in the fallout of uh, Michael Dell's comment about like buying back Apple stock and giving the money to the shareholders. Uh, so Steve says, let's take a look at his product. And the the consumer Dell laptop is, you know, like twice as thick, uh, bulky. You can see giant fan exhaust ports. And of course the iBook is in sterling white. The Dell is in pretty staid corporate black. And Steve Jobs gets like, you know. I don't think it could be more black and white. Oh, <laughs> one of those classic Steve Jobs Let's just put up a slide with their product, and I don't have to tell you anything. <laughs> but yeah, overall, a pretty low-key event. It's focused around one product, which isn't a new product. It's a major revision to an existing product and how that product fits into Apple's 2 by 2 grid and into the general market. The next event to happen in the town hall space, however, was completely different. 
Yes. So the next event that happened in Town Hall, as far as we can tell, pretty much the second event that happened there was, in hindsight, and even at the time, was anticipated to be a huge event in Apple's history because it was widely rumored that Apple was going to enter the music player arena. Nobody quite knew exactly what form that would take. Uh, you know, we, we've talked, uh, we, we have episodes about early music, uh, early alternatives to uh, the iPod, and you, you had the, the small flash-based players like the Diamond Rio, and you had the uh, larger hard drive-based players like, what was it, like Creative Jukebox and things like that. And, and you had alternate formats like Minidisc, like I had. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I had one of those. So this was an anticipated event because despite Apple's great secrecy, people kind of were anticipating they were going to get into the music player space. But nobody was quite prepared for the manner in which the iPod would be introduced, much less the impact that it would have, the massive sales, the halo effect, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we, all, we all know the story from then on over, over the past 15 years, many, many iterations of the iPod, which now barely still exists, but actually does still exist. <laughs> um, but the way that it was presented, I think actually, now that I think about it, it really works for Town Hall because it is this space that's small enough. You know, I think there's what, maybe... 20 rows of seats maximum. So no one is particularly far from the stage. So it's not like at a big like arena rock concert or at some or at one of the huge Apple announcements now where they have a huge giant pro projection screen and then if something is going to take place on stage they actually cut a camera feed over, you know, like, like zoom in on the person on stage and then show that you know, blown up to superhuman proportions behind them on the projector. In Town Hall, it's just one man and his slides. The audience is right there. The audience is right there. You almost feel like you can, you know, reach out and touch the person who's presenting because, you know, first few rows, you, 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 could, you could, you know, you can throw something and hit the stage. And so I think that, I think that built the drama and the way that Steve Jobs decided to introduce the first iPod, which was, of course, with a famous line. A thousand songs in your pocket. And the dramatic gesture of actually pulling out the device and showing it to people in the flesh. Uh, Ed, you mentioned how we're around the 15th anniversary of this happening. Of course, that was October 2001. We're in November 2016. Uh, one of the people who wrote a nice retrospective was Stephen Levy, who at the time was covering technology for Newsweek. Um, and there are some fun details about this event because he was actually uh, at the event for Microsoft Windows XP. And so it's kind of all told over the emails back and forth, um, which was another personal touch. Uh, we've, we've talked about how there are invitations that sometimes the Apple Kremlin, Kremlinologists uh, try and look for clues um, but back then, I think the the context of the invitation was an email that's like, come on down to town hall. We're going to show you something. And this time it's not a Mac. And, uh, you know, just to think about that and the relationship 
uh, between Apple and, and the members of the press, even back then for something like this, was more personal and warm than a broad industry show like Macworld or a developer-focused show like WWDC. Yeah, oh, that's that's interesting that you know, some members of the press weren't even there because <laughs> Town Hall signaled something, you know, on-campus introduction signaled something maybe lesser, but in hindsight, we know that it was something much greater. I think that uh, also on Upgrade, there was a story uh, when Stephen and Jason and Mike did a uh, full episode on the iMac G3, and they had kind of the same reaction to the iMac G3 announcement at Macworld, where there had the most recent Apple event. They're like, yeah, come down to Cupertino. We've got a, a press event for you. And it was something like totally uninteresting, like less than introducing a, a white iBook. It was like, yeah, we revved some performance <laughs> or you know, something like really underwhelming. And then like just a couple months later, they had another announcement and it was also like, yeah, come down to campus. And it turned out to be the original iMac. <laughs> you know, having a small space like this has certain expectations. Yeah. And maybe we should talk about a couple of those. Um, one pattern that we discovered when we were going back and looking at all the events, at least all of the events that have made their way back onto YouTube, is that many of these town hall events ended not with like a famous musician playing one song, uh, but with a Q&A and not a Q&A with just Steve Jobs or the like main presenter, but a panel of Apple executives to talk about the announcements of the day. And, you know, town hall is not only the name of the space, but it's also kind of the type of event. Like everyone comes together and can have a discussion at the end. Yeah. And that's particularly interesting that they carried that on. We, we talked at great length about the uh, Steve Jobs Q&A, the first event that he did coming back to Apple at WWDC in 97. That was like a full hour dedicated QA with developers, not members of the press. So it was kind of more of a free-for-all. But it was interesting that this was the way that they approached this. And it makes sense if you're thinking of this as, yeah, as a, basically a press release or a press conference, right? You know, any any kind of other traditional press conference, whether it's politician or coach after a sporting event or whatever, you know, they'll come out, they'll come up to the the podium, they'll make some remarks, and then there will be time for questions. And that's not something that we really expect of Apple, especially now. We think that, you know, that's pretty much a one-way street. And if you get invited to ask questions, you know, you don't go and ask questions of Apple just as a member of the press. Like a, a single member of the press gets handpicked and invited to have the privilege to ask questions of Apple, either at, you know, like a, a private briefing or in, you know, it, it's opened up a little bit more recently, but still like in a controlled setting, like um, the past couple of years talk show has been able to do like a more public show Q&A with Apple executives. But there was a dark period there, I would say, of about 10 years where that was just something that wasn't done. So it's interesting to go back and see this. And again, to me, you know, with my background coming from, you know, I, I did the whole academic academia life for a while and, you know, went and talked to conferences and things like that and taught 
and it does feel like almost a you know collegiate atmosphere like you know some some university is hosting the the whatever uh you know whatever annual conference on on something and you know, you go and give a presentation and then there's 10 minutes at the end for questions and it has that you know it has that transfer of power in the room where often you know maybe you've been up standing up with your clicker presenting very formally and then everyone's everyone's body language shifts you know everyone kind of relaxes oh the presentation is over but we're still talking and and that's not something that we see anymore so it's interesting that that did go on for a while in the town hall format one of the other things about it being a little bit more of a relaxed environment is that i think apple saw it as a good place to bring in additional speakers instead of having a pure steve note this is you know just going to be one person giving a demonstration and lecture with maybe one or two third-party guests brought in to to demonstrate something. This was more of a, hey, you know, you've come into our house, you're on campus, we've got everybody here, so we might as well bring them in to lend their expertise and and tell you what they know about these products because we're all all here together on campus. And one of the, I think, one of the most interesting things that we found uh, in digging up these videos from town hall is a particular event. Uh, this was the event where the unibody MacBook was introduced. So it was after the Mac first MacBook air, which was the first unibody aluminum construction. And then, uh, they were expanding that to the rest of the line. And in this presentation, Guess who gets up on stage? I mean, it's a small stage in a small room, but guess who gets up on stage and talks for about five minutes about the way that they mill the aluminum to make the unibody construction? Yes, Johnny Ive actually has spoken in person, not on video from the White Room at an Apple event. But even in this smaller, more friendly space, you can tell that he's nervous. Like, he's he's awkward in that space. And uh, one of the things that I noticed, um, you know, he he gets very much into his language of design and the processes that happen here and the materials. I'd like to show you how we actually build our current 15-inch MacBook Pro. That's a, a product that uh, some of you will be familiar with. He is not the picture of comfort here. And one of the things I found actually most interesting about this and the benefit of being able to scrub around in a YouTube video that covers the entire hour is that then at the end, uh, they say, and now we'd like to show you a video about these awesome new machines. And it's a long one. It's like five or six minutes of Ive and others going through the detailed milling process with all of the, you know, robot videos, et cetera, et cetera, that Apple still loves to create. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what? This video is really long, like longer than they usually do for one of those white room videos. It's usually you know, somewhere between like 45 seconds and a couple minutes. This one was like five minutes long, and I, I realized, wait a minute. They ran this whole thing at the end of the presentation, but they had this there in case Johnny just gave the like, no, I'm out signal and wouldn't go up on stage. Like it seemed, it seemed like they had an out in the presentation where if he's just like, this is not happening, like they would just skip right over it, <laughs> which is really, 
it was really interesting. And, you know, I don't feel bad for him. He's got one of the most awesome jobs on the planet and is um, wealthier than God. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that he, you know, he, he's been criticized as having that little hang up for public speaking. And even the town hall was, was almost a bit too much for, for Johnny Ive to conquer, L- let alone the, uh, the Bill Graham auditorium now in, in, uh, you know, I- I'm pretty, I'm pretty comfortable with public speaking, but 6,000 people, man. And then it's not just the 6,000 in the room at this point. It's like millions of people crushing Akamai's traffic live streaming. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a stage that they, that they put on now. So like we said, we don't need to cover every event that happened at Town Hall, but uh, Ed was just talking about the Unibody laptop event in the fall of 2008. The next one I'd like to talk about is the AntennaGate press conference. And again, it's a like it's like a traditional press conference, right? This is not this is not an this does not go on a list of Apple events, right? This is not a presentation, this is not a product announcement. This is something different. And when it happened, it was something that people, a lot of the commentary that came out in the immediate aftermath of it was, this is something Apple does not do. And so for this thing that they do not do, the place that they held it was Town Hall. And it even falls out of line with what we've talked about Town Hall being for. Um, It takes place in July of 2010, which uh, it has to because the iPhone 4, which had the antenna problem, was the last iPhone to be announced and uh, shortly after released at WWDC. So this is a summer event at the town hall. Um, And there's so much about this press conference uh, that maybe because it's unique, maybe because of the circumstances that stand out to me Uh, right off the top, the, the opening like bit of media that they use to get everyone to like, stop talking to each other and silence their phones was covered in uh, an episode of Welcome to Macintosh, episode seven of that show, about the Jonathan Mann, Song a Day Mann uh, song about like, just don't get an iPhone if this is a problem for you. Um, So go listen to that episode uh, to get an idea of how the the tone was set for this press conference. And then uh, this is some classic Steve Jobs bitterness <laughs> all throughout the event because it's where we get the the quote that's like you're holding it wrong basically it's like this is a death grip it doesn't it's not unique to the iphone 4 it happens to any major smartphone if you hold it in a certain way you get the antenna attenuation or whatever um but it goes farther than that it's like let's show you how much the signal drops when you hold the competitor's phone let's show you our like state-of-the-art facility where we're measuring antenna strength in like the the like closest to absolute quiet and like crazy, creepy room <laughs> that the press gets to tour. And like so many other town hall events, it ends with a Q&A. And I remember reading the live blogs about this and like having just started to become aware of, of John Gruber and Daring Fireball. And there's a, uh, a question that John asks during the Q&A after Steve Jobs has begrudgingly offered, everyone's going to get a free case to help solve this problem. <laughs> Take your damn bumpers already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so at the Q&A, uh, Steve is up there, of course. Tim Cook is also up there. And Bob Mansfield, who you know works on hardware, is up there. And uh, Engadget covered it. Gruber asks, uh, which case do you use? And all three of them are like, we don't. <laughs> we don't use a case. And there's even a photo of all three of them holding their naked iPhones that they had taken out of their pockets, which I think is a really great moment. They've got 
you know, those three Apple executives all up there, like, see, this, this whole thing is crazy. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned though, that like we said, you know, this, this was a different tenor of event. Um, <laughs> but then they still couldn't help themselves. It's like, we're in town hall. This is place where we, uh, where we show them, where we show the press, all of the awesome things that we've been doing, which, you know, usually manifests as, as product announcement, but it's like, Hey, they, like, like they couldn't help themselves. They just went back into presentation mode. It's like, look at our anechoic room. It's amazing. <laughs> Can you not believe how, how awesome this is? Yeah. It's, it, it's very funny that as much as they were trying to be humble, uh, it just wasn't, wasn't in Steve Jobs character. But I do agree that I don't think this event could have happened anywhere else. They weren't going to rent out Yerba Buena or Moscone or the Bill Graham Auditorium. And they weren't going to have it in some sort of more sterile briefing. You know, th- this is what they had. Yeah. So, yeah, speaking about the the temperament of Steve, you know, of course, it's it's easy now to divide Apple history into pre and, you know, pre and post Steve Jobs' death. And one of the interesting things about the first presentation after his death, and that was just over five years ago, as we record this, is that it was an event in town hall, and many of the pre- there was no announcement about this. You know, no big deal was made of this, but um, everybody coming into the event was, you know, even the press as well was a, a little somber, knew that something was missing, uh, and. Some of the members of the press noticed that there was one seat in the front row at the event that was labeled reserved. Of course, many of the seats are reserved because they're the people who are giving the presentation and other Apple employees who are invited to take up some small portion of those 300 seats. And, but this, there was this one seat that was marked as reserved and nobody sat there for the entire presentation. And so everybody realized that this was, you know, the seat had been reserved for Steve Jobs for this event, and he could not be there uh, because he because he had died shortly before then. And that's you know that's a pretty touching moment, and uh, uh, it's it's an interesting way. Uh, you know, it, it's a very very nice and understated form of tribute, and um, something that something that I really appreciate um and th- this was not a unfamiliar concept to me of you know saving the seat for someone who actually couldn't be there um one of the interesting things uh is that i live in ann arbor right now and i went to school here at university of michigan for my undergrad and where i live now is just a couple blocks from the from michigan stadium which is the largest football stadium in the country. Okay, right? So th- think town hall, 300 people, save one seat, everybody notices. <laughs> but at, at Michigan Stadium, uh, they have the official capacity of the stadium listed, and it always ends in 01. So right now, the official capacity is 109,901. And the the story goes that there is one seat that's reserved for Fielding Yost, who was one of the very early, like early 20th century coaches of Michigan and won multiple national championships and was, you know, one of the the major figures in the program. So it's like they're still saving a seat for him now many decades later in a place that's huge. 
Um, but it, this kind of works for me. I'm a Michigan fan. I'm an Apple fan. And, uh, and that kind of, uh, that kind of tribute seems very fitting no matter what space you're in. But in town hall, it's noticeable and it gets to you. That event itself, the first one where Steve Jobs was not the, the main presenter or a presenter at all, was the release of the iPhone 4S. Uh, and this was in a town hall schedule. Like uh, I was saying about the antenna gate thing, the iPhone 4 came out at WWDC. Everyone wanted the iPhone 5 or 4S to come out in uh, WWDC the following year. It didn't. And uh, this was the first fall event for Apple iPhones and other mobile devices. Um, Tim Cook, newly appointed CEO, walks out to open the event and you know alludes to the fact that this is his first Apple event. Uh, I think he even talks a little bit about Town Hall, the space itself. Uh, and then this kind of set of tradition, the iPhone 5 did not have an event at, uh, at Town Hall because that was a little bit bigger scale. We had to also redesign all the iPods for the new lightning connector. But the following year, the 5S and 5C were also released and announced at an event in Town Hall. And then uh, the iPhone SE, the kind of off-cycle iPhone, was also at a spring event in the Town Hall. Yeah, so ma- major releases that happened there. I mean, the I, I think that by the time we got to the 5S, that was the point at which people came to the common consensus that the S phones were actually the good ones. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, everyone wanted the new thing that was in the new form factor, but you would actually get a better phone if you were every two years on the S cycle. And so, yeah, not the not the big splash that you would necessarily need for a new form factor. And as, you know, by the time we get to the iPhone 4, the, the iPhone has long eclipsed the iPod and is a huge mass market consumer product. And that's at the point where if you're going to make a, a huge iPhone announcement where you're changing the fundamental look of the product, it's not just Macworld and Wired and Newsweek that are going to be at the event pretty much not not just the top tier Mac sites, not just the top tier tech sites, not just the tech sites, not just the biggest newspapers like New York Times. Uh, everybody wants to be at the event for the release of, of a new iPhone, just from top to bottom. And there's no way... How do, how do you pick 300 people that are going to get to go cover that event live and the remaining couple thousand don't? And so this is where that cycle of having these seasonal events has started to break down a bit because even for some things that we would think of as kind of an off-cycle season, seasonal event, not coinciding with WWDC, not coinciding with Macworld and the fact that Macworld was fading and Apple was no longer a presence there, that kind of got to this point where past the, uh, past the 5S, pretty much anything was going to demand a space bigger than Town Hall because Apple is such a dominant force and everybody, everybody in journalism not just tech journalism once in on these events. So town hall got to be a little bit more of a place for a niche audience for a little bit more of a Mac family. The, the, 
the products that the nerds love and that only those tech sites are the ones that are going to get the invites because they're the ones who are going to dedicate the coverage to something that's not as flashy as a brand new iPhone that a billion people are going to buy. (laughs) So I guess that brings us to, well, this year, really. And uh, like we said at the top, Apple's been, uh, you know, famously has been designing and building their epic new Campus 2. Remains to be seen exactly what day it opens, exactly who winds up there. And uh, one of the things that I think I heard some discussion of recently is that, you know, like they're not shutting down Infinite Loop. Like, I I think that maybe we got that impression when they were building Campus 2. It's like everybody is going to up and move to Campus 2. And it sounds like maybe everyone who's in Infinite Loop now is going to up and move to Campus 2 and maybe some other people. But there are satellite offices elsewhere in Silicon Valley, maybe some teams elsewhere in the country that they would like to move out to California. And so Infinite Loop is a huge campus, and they're not going to throw away that space. But the chances of Town Hall being superseded, at least as an event, as an event space, that's not just for internal corporate meetings, chances are that that's going away. And we figured that given the the yearly event cycle that we expected, we're we're now at the point where we have, okay, we kind of expect iPads and maybe some other stuff in the spring. We expect big software OS announcements at WWDC in the summer. And then we expect a separate phone event in... September, end of summer, early fall. And like I said, that's such a huge event that it commands an additional space. I think this year was the first year with the iPhone 7 that they rented out Bill Graham for that. Again, like a 6,000-seater venue. Um, I don't think they filled it quite for the iPhone event the way that they did for WWDC because you know, WWDC sells out because uh, it's a week-long event. But, the, you know, they had enough people in there that it justified the space for for the iPhone event, and that's something where they have to go out and have to get that bigger space. So, like, what what is left? Uh, oh well, there's there's Macs, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> sometimes sometimes those get updated, sometimes they don't. But we figured that the way that the product cycle was going to go as we were looking this spring was that oh, like new Macs will come in the summer probably, and so spring event iPads was going to be the last event there. And to a certain extent, it seems that Apple thought that too, because the the focus of this event was the introduction of the 9.7-inch Baby Pro, iPad Pro. But it featured a pretty healthy dose of Apple history. It was also around the time of Apple's 40th anniversary. They did the 40 and 40 video there, which we covered on the show in the spring. And we thought, you know, Okay, you're you're looking back at this history of the company, history of the space, and they didn't say so in as many words, but there was definite hinting at the end of the presentation like thank you for coming, this is the last time we'll all be here. But <laughs> I don't know, true Apple fashion, one more thing, <laughs> but I I don't think that this was showmanship. I think that they were constrained into this. Yeah. We're looking more at the history than at the present. But I think this is good historical context, which is that um, Apple didn't want to have this last event that happened last week in Town Hall. They thought that all of this stuff was going to get 
done earlier in the year and that the space was retired, but various things outside of their control prevented the release of those products. And, well, they had, as it turned out, a single product event that they needed a space to hold an event for that was really only going to be of interest to the tech press. And so that was the event that happened last week with the uh, the Touch Bar MacBook Pro was introduced. Also, it's a uh, cheaper cousin with uh, traditional function keys. That's the one that you've got, Brian. Yeah. Yep. I, I'm calling it the MacBook 2. I'm not going to call it the MacBook Escape. Oh, yes. It does have two ports. That's, that's officially in the title. But yeah. Uh, and again, there was no explicit reference to the fact that we are in town hall where this is the last time we'll be in town hall. But again, uh, looking at the history and knowing our context in Apple's event cycle, the seasonality of their, those things, and the fact that should anything in the future necessitate a town hall type event, we're close enough to the completion of their second campus, which will have one assumes a much nicer town hall style on campus auditorium that the town hall at infinite loop uh, probably saw its last event. Yeah. And our Twitter mentions blew up <laughs> during, <laughs> yeah. during the event for the show and the, the show Twitter, because uh, I wasn't watching live, but there was a video which we'll link in the show notes, which is the history of the power book. So there was some question here about how Apple framed this history. They're like, Apple notebook or like Apple portable computers. And yeah, we did the show on portability if, <laughs> a few yeah, months ago. Like, you missed one. Yeah. Everyone's like, you missed one. You missed one. But I think they were pretty clear that they said the power book. So the power book started with the, what, the 100, the 150, the 170 simultaneous release. And they used the 170 as their example of like, we set the standard for notebooks because the 170 was the one that had the active matrix screen, I think. And so, it, yeah, and like the passive matrix it was not as good, not what they wanted to show off. Um, and the Macintosh portable, despite being a adorable, ridiculous suitcase, was also not what, what they wanted to show off. But they have this awesome video and people are, you know, at, at least those of us who are the particular type of Mac history nerd uh, are trying to figure out exactly how they did this, like how much of this was CG um, and how much of this was like reference hardware? Because it's this video that starts off with uh, a chime, which I got down on Apple for get using the wrong chime, but I think it's the right chime. It's the chime that debuted with the quadras, but was probably used on the 170 itself. Starts with a chime and a Happy Mac. Irony, given the whole like chime gate thing that then came up two days later once people started getting their hands on review units of this machine or actual you know, production units of the machine, like in your case. Mm -hmm. And so they start with the chime and then they just have power books and MacBooks flying through the air and like old ones. Like there's like, I think a wall street flies by and then there's a blueberry iBook. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, just like, again, tons of history wrapped up in this video. And for my part, man, th that video, I think it kind of outdoes the 40 and 40, because 40 and 40, it was all text, right? And and as we pointed out in our episode, some of it text with typos. Like 40 and 40 could kind of be like whipped together very quickly. Whereas this video that that does a very 
very flashy, uh, but very visually appealing overview of the history of Mac laptops. Um, there was there was some love put into that, <laughs> and I think I think they wanted that to show um, that. And some of the comments that Phil Schiller has made recently, um, people within Apple, especially I think within Phil's team, they want people to not think that they've given up on the Mac. And so so there was there was a lot of love for the history of the Mac and the future of the Mac. I think um, it, there was an interview with Phil shortly after the event saying, like, what's the difference between an iPad and, and, uh, and a MacBook? And it's, you know, it's the form factor. And he says, we think we're going to have this form factor for another t- 25 years. That, that was the retrospective they were. That was why they skipped the, the portable, I think, was because they wanted it to be like 25 years ago was the first, was the PowerBook 170 Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he says there will still be notebook computers 25 years from now and Apple plans on making them. So that's an interesting future history projection, um, which is kind of cool to see because they don't usually make statements to that effect. I mean, we, we ask people in our interview show from release notes, what do you think for the future? And people are like, ah, I don't know. How do you possibly predict the future of this stuff? So it's interesting to hear that from someone directly at Apple that says, we, we really appreciate the history of how far this has come. We think it, we can take it that much further, but there are some things about this that are just fundamental. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the last word for Town Hall at 4 Infinite Loop, Cupertino, California. It's, it's seen a lot of historic and important events. It's seen some that uh, turn out to not be so important, like the introduction of the XSERF. Oh, and the... Um, the iPod Hi-Fi was a, was a town hall event. That's right. <laughs> we skipped over those for a reason. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's it's seen the whole gamut of things, uh, not just the the passing of time, but products from you know things that aren't so important to products that brought Apple back from the brink of doom. Uh, so it's it's got a lot of history wrapped up in it, and it uh, stands up alone as something that like had a particular feel for the kind of events that happen there when Apple can, it's on Apple's home turf, it's uh, on their terms and it, they can do the most with that. Yeah. And I think that it's, you know, it's kind of fun to be able to close the book on, uh, on a particular era of Apple history and this particular space, but it's also reassuring to know that, you know, it's, it's not getting. They're, they're not bringing in the bulldozers tomorrow. It's 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 still going to be there for a while, and so that that sense of history will will endure at least for the people who are still on Apple Campus One uh, after the big move next year. So, like we mentioned, there will be many links in the show notes for this episode, which you can see in your podcast player or at our website, simplebeep.com/episodes. You can also send us feedback on our website. There's a contact form there, or you can get in touch with the show on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. You can, of course, also find each of us individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And because this is a podcast, we can't do a Q&A session at the end. So <laughs> that's the end of the episode. We'll see you next time.